So I'm going to be sharing on the birth of Jesus, the promised kingdom. The birth of Jesus is the promised kingdom. The kingdom was promised, but revealed in untrue Christ. So the kingdom of, Je- I mean the birth of Jesus, the promised kingdom. Now let's go down quickly to the book of Luke. I pray I should be able to get through with what I have. Luke 1 verse 30. <clears throat> this is when uh, the angel visited Mary at the time of conception. Can you open it for me? All right. And the Bible says, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in the womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Verse 32, he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. The throne of his father, David. Part of this world is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 7. 11 and 12, that's where the promise was made unto David. And when Jesus was conceived from this announcement, it's like saying that which was spoken by Samuel is about being fulfilled. And so verse 33 says, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now when you move down to verse 67 of Luke chapter 1, this is another prophecy. Talking about John now. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of our father of Israel, for I have visited and redeemed his people, and I raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which being seen, I mean, which being since the world began. So the angel mentioned that in relation to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here again, the father of John is making this prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus again, being the horn of salvation and the redemption of Israel in relation to the prophetic word that had been. Let's take one of these prophetic words from Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Because he was making reference to the prophets. In Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Behold the days come and say the Lord that I will raise unto David the righteous branch. And the king shall reign and prosper. And shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved. And Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name. Whereby he shall be called the Lord. Our righteousness. That was a prophecy that Zachariah was making reference to as well. And again, if you look at Jeremiah 30, verse 10, he said, Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, say the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar and the sea from the hand of the captivity, and Jacob shall return and shall be in the rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, said the Lord, to save thee, 
Though I make a full end of all nations, without having scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure. I will not leave thee altogether, altogether unpunished. Praise the Lord. So this is basically what we see. God made a promise through the prophet. And when Jesus was conceived, the angel announced that prophetic word. It's like saying there's a fulfillment of what the prophet spoke about. And the first reference was done to Samuel. And then when we come to Jeremiah here, the father of John came up making the same proclamation that the house of David is going to be saved. And then the one that is going to be born that should be called Jesus. Again, the Lord our righteousness will sit upon the throne of his father, David. Amen? All right. Now, let's quickly move down to what we know too well, which is uh, Mighty 26, talking about the Testament, uh, which has to do with the new covenant that Jesus was inaugurating. In Mighty 26, verse 26, following, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and, and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day that when I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had, when they had sung and him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. This is very important. This has to do with the Passover. This has to do with what we call the last meal that he had with the disciples before he went to the cross. And here he's saying, I won't drink it with you until I drink it with you again in my Father's kingdom. And that makes us feel when Jesus comes again, in quote, that is when it's going to be fulfilled. And so that the mindset is the kingdom is not available now, it's not around now, because this word, for instance, had not been fulfilled. We're going to look at the scriptures. Hallelujah. Now, let's take it again from the book of Luke chapter 22. Verse 15. And he said unto them, We desire, therefore, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. This is very important. I'm reading all of this for us to go to what the kingdom is and how that the promises made to David by the prophet is being fulfilled. And like I said, having come this far, sometimes we now begin to feel by reason of the statement of Jesus that this fulfillment is tied up to what we call a second coming. But permit me to say, there is no scripture in this book that we read that have the word second and coming tied together. If you can find it, let me have it. Second and coming, you can find it in the Bible. 
The only thing you see is second times. That's Hebrew chapter 9, which relates to his priesthood. And then come again, which is John 14. But what we find in John 14 is what we are interpreting to mean second coming. But second and coming are never found in the Bible. And it come again, if you take time to study diligently, actually means a fulfillment of a promise. A typical example you can find is in the book of Genesis, when God spoke to Abraham and said, this time next year, I will come again, and your wife shall have a seed. Now, we know that Isaac was born, because our promise was made. But we never saw a physical God came to visit Abraham. Does it make sense? First occurrence in scripture. So, if you want to check out what, the, what it really means, come again, you can go there. And they're related to what Jesus said in John 14. But let's make progress. Let me read a scripture here in Deuteronomy 26 verse 5. As it relates to the promise to Israel, in terms of who Israel is, we must understand that it was after the wrestling with Jacob, with the angel on the road, that it became Israel. So when we talk about Israel, we're talking about the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob. In Deuteronomy 26, verse 5, the Bible says, And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, a Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt, and sojourned there with a few, and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. This is talking about the house of Israel. Now, why do you think the world is using Assyria? This is basically talking about Jacob. As a result of the lengthy years they spent in the house of Laban, with servitude, to be able to get his wives. And again, we do know, like when he said he's been ready to perish, it stands for the hard labor, the severe issues that the father-in-law subjected him. And then talking about the issue of Syria and my fathers and wandering, this is simply an indication of nomadic life, which has to do with the ascensors of Jacob himself, Abraham, Isaac, but we are seeing here that from this wandering life, and again, we do know Abraham, as it were, was kind of a Syrian by birth. And by the long stay of Jacob in that place, so you say, my ancestors were wandering and they were Syrians, and the nation came out of it. So we find that Abraham gave back to Jacob, then Isaac, I mean Isaac to Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. This is what you mean by the populous nation that came out of that wandering nomadic life. All right. Now, we just read something about the blood and the cups. And this is very important. When the Passover was being celebrated, we find that there were five cups of wine that they were taking. And by the way, let's get this right. The wine that they were using were not fermented wines. They were the grape wine directly squeezed out, most often by the head of the family. Major reason is because if you use fermented wine, then Jesus will see corruption. And the Bible says he never saw corruption because if you use fermented wine, that means he has already seen corruption. 
Now, when he said, this is my blood, the blood cannot see corruption, therefore no fermented wine was used. And so if you use, I'm not against that. When you use the fermented wine, you are not truly doing what they were doing. Because Jesus will never see corruption. And fermentation speaks of corruption. It was raw grapes that they were using from the vine. Now, talk with me to Exodus so that I explain something there. Exodus chapter 6, verse number 6 and 7. This is where you have the five cups being used at a time of the Passover celebration. And when he said, I will not drink this with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom of our father, that was the last cup, which was what I'm going to explain now. They took four. They sang him, but the last one was not taken. He reserved that when he had the Passover with him. In Exodus 6 verse 6, this is what the Bible says. Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the bondages of the Egyptians. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy? They become populous and under severe bondage or whatever. And I will read you out of their bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched arm and with a great judgment. And I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God which bringeth you forth out of under the bondage of the Egyptians. Now, if you look at the I will, I will, there are five. So anytime they are having the Passover, the first cup is a cup of the blessing. God, as it were, is like the blessing of God for the fruit of the vine. The first cup. Second cup. The Lord, who is the bread giver, they give thanks and sing him. Third cup, the Lord that delivered us from Egypt. Fourth cup, the Lord, our redemption from the bondage of the Egyptians. Fifth cup, the Lord making us his people, the cup of praise. These are the five cups that were used. It's the last one he said, I'm not going to drink it with you. Until I drink this with you in the kingdom of our Father. Back to Luke chapter 22. And when they do these cups, they have to sing the psalm, I think Psalm 113 or so, which is called the Holly or the Hallelujah Psalm. They have to sing that. They take the cup, they sing. Take the cup, they sing. In Luke 22, verse 18, the Bible says, For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom shall come. Kingdom of God shall come, which is the last cup. And so, in Luke 14, 15 again, the Bible says, And when one of them that sat at meat with him, how these things, he said unto him, Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bid many to come, if you will. Now, you see, when this man said, ah, It's going to be a wonderful thing. For those who are going to have the privilege to drink this cup with you in the kingdom of God. Then he launched into a parable of a great man that had a great supper and inviting all the people to come. And he must understand that when he said this, he was actually dealing with Israel. That he was inviting to himself. If you look at all the parables of this supper and at the great feast, 
Be able to see the instance in the book of Matthew when he said, Go into the byways and get the lames and the blind and let them come because those who are bidding to come to the feast, they refuse to come. That invitation was to the Gentile nations. And it's not as if it's when it comes again, in quotes, that is where that's going to happen. Hallelujah. So now, he said, he launched into a parable and he said, this is going to happen when he who has a feast, as it were, set up the feast and invited people to come. But now let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 41, reading from 38. Now I want you to get this. I will not drink this with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom of our Father. And I'm going to explain what it really means to drink or to eat together, as it were. So, Act 41, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, his disciples speaking now, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are eyewitnesses of all these things which he did both in the hand of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hung on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. Hallelujah. What then do you think we see here? On the other side of the cross, he made a promise. This side of the cross, the promise is fulfilled. I will not drink this with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom of our Father. That when he rose from the grave, he did drink with the disciples. Meaning, the kingdom was realized on the other side of the cross. Does it make sense? So it's not a tomorrow thing. It's a now thing. The promise was fulfilled when he rose from the grave. He drank and he ate with the disciples. You have to understand that. What do we really mean when you talk about eating and drinking? Talk with me to Exodus 24. We have two Bibles or two, two books. If you like, call it the old and the new, whatever. Exodus 24 verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and what? Drink. With who? With God. So now, what does it really mean to eat and to drink? Going by the statement of Jesus. Hallelujah. Eating and drinking is basically a peace offering. Most often. And then we find that this offering was a ramification of a covenant. That's why I said this is the blood of the new covenant. So in Exodus, when they drank and ate, that was a covenant feast 
that Israel was having with God. So because you have the Old Testament and there was the eating and drinking to rectify the covenant, he also had to partake of the same to rectify the covenant, which is a new covenant in his blood. Again, we find that this peace offering, like I said, which has to do with covenant ramification, you can check it out even in the book of Genesis, but time is not there. Isaac in Beersheba had that Genesis 26 verse 30. He ate and drank. He made a feast and they did eat and drink. That's Isaac. It was a covenant to seal your relationship with the one you are coming in relationship with. That's what eating and drinking stands for. So when they ate and drank in the Old Testament, that was to seal the covenant that God entered into with the children of Israel. Then when Jesus was eating and drinking in the New Testament, in this context, is to seal the covenant is entering with you and I, which is the New Testament church. Now, if you look at Revelation 3 verse 20, the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. Now, you see, when we read this, we don't take note of very simple things there. He said, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. But you see, we read it so fast that we forget very little thing. I will come in to him. It is I will come to him. It's not like he's visiting. I will come in to him. So the fellowship is in the inn. Did you get that? I will come in to him. This is why often we say the kingdom of God is within you. I will come in to him. I'm not just coming to him. It's not passing by. It's not just knocking on your door. He's coming in to get united with you. And that's why he partook of feasts. Which is the same thing as the world's supper. I will come into him. And we sup with him. And be with him. It's basically an image denoting intimacy and friendship. That's what it stands for. It's a relationship. So, 1 Corinthians 6, 17, we tell you, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. So I will come into him and sup with him. Like I said, supper with the ancient was the principle of social meal. And the idea here is that between the Savior and those who will receive him, there will be the intimacy which exists between those who sit down to a friendly meal together. Hallelujah. In countries and ancient and times past, to eat together, to break bread together, has been the symbol of friendship. You can just quickly pick this from the life of David and that of Mephibosheth. How many of you can remember that? Say, go get, is anybody in the house of Saul? Layman Mephibosheth, go bring him. And when the guy came, say, you sit with me on my table. We eat together. Which has to do with the covenant I was supposed to enter with your father. But the father saw the reality of God's kingdom coming through David, but failed to move, and then he died with his father. But is there anybody in the house of Saul? So Mephibosheth was brought to eat with David in his kingdom. Because eat on his table, 
to it with him on his kingdom. To solidify or to rectify the same covenant he entered with Jonathan, rather. Is that okay? All right. So to sup is simply supper. It's to eat. And so when you say last supper, last supper is not necessarily saying you eat it in the evening. Because I hear people say last supper must be taken in the evening. No, no, no. What I mean is this is the last one I'm going to have with you before I go to the cross. Not last in terms of time. This is the last supper. They've been having, it's a Jewish man. And they've been having Passover meal all around. But this is the last one. That's what they mean by last supper. Not necessarily that it has to be done by 6 p.m. Because I hear people teach that. You can't take the last supper in the morning. You take it in the evening. I mean, it's very funny. Hallelujah. All right. I said the last meal or the last cup was the cup of praise. And so when he eats the cup of praise with you, you become a praise of God. In other words, God, remember what he said in Exodus 6, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. That is the fulfillment of the last cup. Other cups were the cup of redemption, cup of deliverance, cup of the wine, cup of, you know, the bread. But here is the last cup, which is the cup of praise, indicating God is in the people for himself on the face of the earth. So Ephesians 1, this is what he says. Verse 4. According to our chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6. To what? To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherewith he had made us acceptable in the beloved. So when he said, I will come in and sup with him, he got united with you, and then you are now redeemed, you come to the Lord, you become a praise of God on the face of the earth. That is the last cup that he was supposed to take. So if you realize now that the last cup was supposed to be taken, which is a cup of praise, a people unto God, and now we're a people unto God, that means the last cup has been taken, and it has been taken where? In God's kingdom. Because I will not take this with you until I drink it with you in the kingdom of our Father. You can also find that in Ephesians 1 verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. Who first trusted in who? In Christ. That's the last cup. We are the fulfillment of that last cup. And it's taken right now in God's kingdom. When he comes in to you and sup with you, you are partaking of the last cup, which is the cup of praise. So now we are God's praise. God has gotten a people unto himself. Therefore, that cup has been fulfilled. Therefore, the kingdom is right here. Hallelujah. You can find something very interesting elsewhere in Revelation 3 verse 14. And also the angel of the church of the laudation writes. Then you go to verse 21. To him that overcome it will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and I'm set down with my father in his throne. Hallelujah. And somebody again will look at this is David. This is what I'm telling you. This is future. <laughs> Hallelujah. 
He that overcome it. That was a promise to a physical church. You will sit with me on my throne. He that conquers. Hallelujah. So we find here that every promise here made has been fulfilled actually to those who can trust him even unto death that he was trying to promise the people. Here is a most remarkable expression. Jesus has conquered and he sat down with the Father upon the Father's throne. Now he say he will conquer through Christ, sit down with Christ upon his throne. But remember this, Christ's throne and the throne of the Father is the same. There are not two thrones. They are one. Hallelujah. So it is on this throne that those who are faithful unto that are finally to sit. It's one throne, not two thrones. We must understand this. Not even three, praise God. Not even three. We must understand this. One God, O Israel. There is but one God. We must understand that. To sit on throne simply stands for dominion and authority and power. That's what it stands for. It's not talking about some physical seat that somebody might probably be hanging on, like in my country with something on the head. Do you watch African magic? You see all of my kings over there? You have some even in this country. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're not talking about that. God is not that kind of person. He doesn't dress himself that way. You talk about crown in the Bible, people think you're going to put on literal crown. I remember when I was young, they would say, we're going to have seven crowns when we get to heaven. And I used to wonder, how do I put on this crown? It's like I use one every day. Use one on Monday, use one on Tuesday, use the other one on Tuesday, use the Saturday, we start them all over again. Oh, man. But the Bible talks about crowns of righteousness. Right? Crown of joy. Crown of rejoicing. These are not literal things. Paul speaking to the First Thessalonian church and say, you are my hope, my joy, and my crown. It's a people. I'm not talking about literal things you put on your head. Crown of righteousness, talking about the righteousness of Christ. Crown of glory, talking about Christ manifesting himself through you, that you begin to reveal the powers of God on the face of the earth. John 2 tells of verse 11. He said, when he turned water to wine, that was the beginning of the manifestation of his glory. And the disciple believed in him. So when you receive a crown of glory, you come into the place of dominion. And you don't have to die to receive that. You have to be alive to manifest power. You have to be alive to receive joy. The crown of joy. Huh? You are my crown. You are my rejoice. You are my glory. That is why soul winning is very important. When you win souls, the people you are winning to the Lord becomes your crown. That's what Paul was saying. You, Thessalonians, you are my crown. You know that what if you stand before the Lord, you have an evidence of the work you've done. So you don't leave that to people and say some people alone have to do evangelism, so I have to do witnessing, and then maybe you, the bishop, you're hanging up somewhere, you don't come down from your seat. You tell me what crown you're going to show the Father when you appear before him. You know what the word said? He said, my reward is in my hand to give to every man according to his work. Every man. That means every one of you, what you do depends on what give to you. He didn't say to every church and to the whole church. It's to every man. So I have to work for my own reward. Not because I belong to a family. Neither is God going to reward your son because you're faithful. Otherwise, God will have rewarded the sons of Samuel. 
Where are they? That's why I find that God is not a respecter of person. Yes, but God respects personalities. He respects individuals. He doesn't deal with genealogy. He respects you for who you are. My reward is to every man according to his work, not according to genealogical work. That's my progress because I want to be, I want to keep to time. So, what do we mean here sitting together with him on the throne? We're talking about the highest places within the rest of the lowest. Talking about uh, Laodicean church. There is something we need to point out there. Remember, he really, that's one of the church that he really rebuked. But yet, he's promising them a throne. <laughs> so we find out the highest place is within reach of the lowest. And the farthest spark of grace may be found in the mightiest flame of love. This is according to Trench. And I love him. There's a the love of the Father. Hallelujah. Let's look at the issue of sitting on thrones. Just remaining many minutes to do that. Luke 22 verse 28 again. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I will appoint unto you a kingdom. As my father has appointed unto me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. <laughs> this sounds like. Oh yeah. From what we believe. When he comes again. When Israel is redeemed, resurrection maybe, I don't know, then the disciples will come and sit down with him. I believe they are going to be like the kingmakers. Maybe Jesus' throne will be into the east and then remaining disciples, all of them have their thrones wherever. Funny. Hallelujah. Now, when is this going to be fulfilled? What time is it going to be fulfilled? We check the Bible again. Let's take the account from, this same account, but let's read it from Matthew's perspective. Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that they which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the regeneration, so, what Luke said is probably been defined for us by Matthew. When are they going to be on the throne? At the time of the regeneration. So, what time is that? Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Come with me. Not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his message saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of what? Of the Holy Ghost. So the time of regeneration is a time of the Holy Spirit. So when he said, you shall judge the twelve tribes, it directly connected to when he rose from the grave, the Holy Spirit came, the people of Israel began to receive judgment from the hand of the apostles. Not tomorrow. The time of the regeneration is the time of the Holy Spirit. And that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So the kingdom is here. The disciples sat on the throne where they were proclaiming Christ, doing signs and wonders, they were judging Israel. Because you must understand that when the Holy Spirit came, He came right in Jerusalem, all Israel were represented right there. Right from that moment, the world began to be proclaimed. Jerusalem, Judea, and then the utmost part of the earth. They were judging. We need to understand the concept of judgment. That's, that's another thing which I cannot come into now. 
Now, go with me very quickly again. First Corinthians 11. I've touched it a little bit, but let me just touch it. First Corinthians 11. That, don't forget, Matthew was written in AD 65. I mean, 61. It's very important you keep that at the back of your mind. AD 61, book of Matthew. First Corinthians 11, 25. Bible said, after the same manner also he took the cup. Now, Paul is speaking. Which he has served, saying, this cup is a New Testament in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Oh, that David, that's what I'm telling you. Till he come. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. First Corinthians was written in AD between 57 and 58. You need to get that. Act was written between 61 and 63 AD. A reason why I'm giving you this date. So, Corinthians was written some years before Luke and even before Acts. Because Luke was written AD 63. Acts was written, like I said, between 61 and 63. And Matthew, AD 61. This is very important in relation to what we've just read. So we know when that statement was made. And what this coming really is. Till the Lord comes. What coming is this? Don't forget in the Bible. The Bible talks about he's coming like a thief. He's coming like a bridegroom. You know, you know how many shades and several shades of coming. You must understand from contextual explanation. What coming is he referring to? It's not all one coming. The way we have seen it first and second. There are several comings of the Lord. You look, at, you look at Matthew 16 at the last verse. What did he say? He was speaking to the people and said, Some of you standing here shall not taste dead until you see this old man come in his glory. Matthew 16, 28. He was speaking to his own disciples. And the Bible says after six days, he took them up to the mountain, chapter 17, and transfigured before them. When Peter was recounting that experience, he said, We are witnesses of the coming of the majesty of glory. When the voice said, this is my beloved son. We were eyewitnesses of the coming. The Christ in Jesus blew up. They saw him. I said, we were eyewitnesses of his coming. Which we promised to them. In Matthew 16, 28. We do not always understand how the Lord comes. And I'm sure we miss him severally when he comes. Because we're only waiting for the first and the second, as it were. Even, even in the first coming, how did he come in the first place? He didn't see him draw from the sky. The glory overshadowed a woman. He said, that holy thing that shall be formed in thee shall be called the Son of God. Where did he come from? From the glory cloud. Nobody dropped from the sky. So how are you expecting to draw from the sky? Somebody said, but Pastor David, that's what the Bible says. The two angels said that in Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11. There's no scripture like two angels. Go read the Bible again. The Bible says two men. And the two men is Elijah and Moses. They manifested from the realm of glory to witness to the fact that we being the prophet and the law will testify of your death and resurrection. You can read Romans chapter 3 verse 21. 
He said the righteousness of God is being witnessed by the law and the prophet. In Luke chapter 9, read it down. But the transfiguration said two men appeared, which was Elijah and Moses. Why were they appearing? To testify that, you know, if I were to appear first of all in the matter of transfiguration, they just came, the Bible said they came to strengthen him and they were talking about his death. Remember, Jesus didn't find it easy going to the cross, so they came to strengthen him. They were trying to say, listen, brother, if you don't go to the cross, our testimony has fallen to the ground. We said you're going to die, so please go. They came to strengthen him. That's why they appeared on the matter of transfiguration. So by the time he died, they went to the grave. Check it again. The book of Luke said two men were there when the disciples came. They were sitting there watching his body until the resurrection takes place. They didn't want people to come steal the body. They were there, Moses and Elijah. By the time he rose, they followed him to the Mount of Transfiguration. By the time he arose, people were looking up and said, don't look up. We said this to you. He has to go into glory. It was Moses and Elijah, not angels. That's human theology. Read the book. Don't allow preconceived ideas to blind your mind. It will become like the law that veiled the mind of the people of Israel that they cannot see the glory that was behind what Moses was saying. So let's come down. So what time is this? What, what, what coming is this? You can take this to be the full manifestation of the Christ within his body. But essentially, there's something I want to show you here. It's not just that. But let's read this. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the command, I mean, communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we be many, and one, bird, one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold Israel after the flesh, and not they which eat of the sacrifice partaker of the altar. You just understand that. First thing I want you to pick from here is, whatever you eat becomes you. They will get that. Whatever you eat becomes you. Or you become what you eat. Hmm? Good. So, he said we are partaking of the bread. So what does that mean? We become one with the bread. And if he said, this is my body, that means we have received his body. So in the true sense, you are now his body. Because you must become what you eat. Therefore, it's not just a ceremony. It's life. Because it's out of that bread that God got the people of his praise on the face of the earth. You are that bread. We do all of that. What do you use in your communion service? Uh, wafer, wafer, wafer biscuit? Oh, okay. No, people say you don't use, you use wafer, you, you, whatever thing you use, thing produced by man cannot represent my Jesus. I don't know. Sorry, I'm not hurting anybody, but I'm just being frank with you. Right? The man who have done chemistry or food cannot represent Jesus. It's life. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Your wine is a corrupted wine because there's fermentation. Jesus cannot see corruption. Therefore, that cannot be the blood of Jesus. Should we take communion? Why not? As often as you will. Even right here. No problem. We're feasting together. As we fellowship, the blood of Jesus cleans us from all unrighteousness. I have no problem. But we must understand the spiritual implication of whatever thing we think we're doing. But let me show you something here. This coming that Paul was writing about was his coming in judgment to Israel 
in AD 70. This is what Paul was talking about. You do this until the Lord comes. You show for his death. How many of you understand that? Remembrance how to do with memoria. Huh? Remember how to do with memoria. Now, if you're talking about memoria, is Jesus dead? He said, I'm alive forevermore. You don't remember dead, you can only remember dead people. Jesus is alive. I was dead, yet I'm alive forevermore. He is alive. The one I worship is alive. He's not dead. Can I remember your father that is late buried in the cemetery? The best way to remember Jesus is to fix us together because we're dismembered before. See what the thief said? Remember me. Put me together, not memory. God can forget things. He doesn't forget. Why is the thief remember me? You mean Jesus is going to forget him? God don't forget. But put me together. Remember. God remember what is it? Is it Russia now? And she brought forth. What is that supposed to mean? God put back her members. She who was bearing was remembered. Her members were brought back together. To remember is to put together. It's to reassemble. Not as if you lost something, you're thinking about it, and you, you know, if only I can remember. No. God doesn't forget things. Hallelujah. So, talking about judgment, and this is very important. He said, you shall sit on twelve judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I mean, if you understand that. Now, let me show you a scripture here. First Corinthians 6, verse number 1. Remember, this is, this is written in AD 57, 58. First Corinthians 6, verse 1. There any of you have a matter against another, and go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? Why do you think he's using the word shall? Okay, the best way you take this is the word of God is yesterday, today, and forever. So all of those things which you said has taken place can also repeat themselves in the life of a people who walk the way Israel walked. Because his word is yesterday, today, and forever. Are we together? So do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? What kind of judgment is this? And if the, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you know that we shall judge angels? How much more things are pertain to this life? We shall judge angels. How do you judge angels? <laughs> hey, permit me to read this scripture from the message translation. 1 Corinthians 6. And how dare you take each other to court? When you think you have been wrong, does it make any sense to go before a court that knows nothing of God's ways instead of a family of Christians? Verse 2. The dare is coming. When the world is going to stand before a jury made up of Christians. I like that. Huh? <laughs> if somebody, if someday you are going to rule on the world's fate, you determine the fate of the world. That's what it means to judge. Wouldn't it be a good idea to practice on some of these smaller matters? Verse 3. Why? We are even going to judge angels. So why not these everyday affairs? What does that mean? It simply also means that the saints are right now sitting on the throne. Even as Israel sat. I mean the 12 tribes to judge Israel. I mean the 12 disciples to judge the 12 tribes. 
Is that okay? Permit me to say this. Do you even know that even as we are reading the scriptures, the apostles, I mean the disciples of Jesus are judging us. They are sitting as judges. Because the thing they have written down, it will convince us, as the case may be. They are passing judgment. What is judgment anyway? We often see judgment to be, well, condemnation. No. The same judge that condemns people can discharge and acquit another man, can give another man bailable offenses. It's the same judge. Judgment is not always condemnation. As a matter of fact, the word judgment in the Greek is mispah, which means decisive decision. It's a decision-making process. That's what judgment means. Hallelujah. So the saints are sitting and judging the world now. The very world that Satan was promising Jesus if he would bow down to him. This is going, getting back to the place of dominion as it were in the original thoughts of God. God from creation. Let them have dominion. When he said he changed and judged the world, it simply means the saints are putting this right the way it's supposed to be. That is what it means. Through the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not a future thing. Some of you will hope and keep hoping and you never, never actualize, never have anything to show for it because what you are hoping for is right here available. Let me show you something as I talk about this same judge in the world now. John 12. So that I just want to define from scripture what judgment means. I like this. Thank you, Lord. John 12, 31. Jesus speaking before going to the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. The saints shall judge the world. <laughs> now shall the prince of this world be what? Cast out. So judging the world is equal casting out of Satan from the life of people. Does it make sense? Now is the judgment of this world. That is before he went to the cross. Now shall the prince of this world be what? Cast out. And it did happen when he went to the cross. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh Praise the Lord. Turn with me to John 16, verse 7. I'm trying to tell you that the saints are judging the world now. It's not a tomorrow thing. It's a now thing. You better stand on the throne, I mean sit on your throne and do exactly. Because Jesus said, as the Father gave me authority and sit on the throne, even so shall I give to you to sit on thrones. You have to have your throne. You have to have your kingdom sphere to rule from as a king. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he's come, he will prove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You follow now. Of sin because they believe not in me. Of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is what? Is judged. Is there tomorrow? No. This was the promise of the Holy Spirit. So go to Luke chapter 10 verse 18. And he said unto them. That is when he sent the 70 out. And they came back. And they saw manifestation. They cast out devil. They healed the sick. They did all that they were supposed to do. And then he came back. And they narrated all this to him. What did he tell them? And he said unto them. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In other words. As I go to the cross, you're going to receive power and everywhere you find Satan is going to come down before you. That is the fall of Satan. It's not the one you were thinking about somewhere. I know people used to read that from. 
What did I say fair from? They have some scriptures in Isaiah. Isaiah 14? Yeah, Isaiah 14, Lucifer fell. How many of you understand that Lucifer had nothing to do with Satan or devil? It was origin that used that word to describe Satan. Jesus never used the word Lucifer to describe Satan. Go check the Bible. And that is the only scripture that that word is used. And Isaiah was actually prophesying about the fall of the king of Babylon. It have nothing to do with a spirit called Lucifer. Go and read it from different translations. It was one of the father of faith origin that actually brought that out. He spiritualized the word Lucifer to mean Satan. Jesus didn't say that. Revelation 12, it tells us precisely that old serpent, the dragon, Satan, the devil, four names that Jesus gave to these serpents. He was one serpent, became a dragon. How? Because many people receive his ministration and begin to manifest him just like the body of Christ manifest Jesus. So one serpent became a dragon. I behave Satan fall. What he's trying to say as I go to the cross, power is going to be released to every believer. And they have right to cast out devils. That's how you rule and reign. Hallelujah. That's why you are judging this wall. Because you are judging the prince of this wall. Is anybody getting this? You don't wait till you die to do this. You don't wait to go to heaven to do this. No demons in heaven. It is here that you're going to exercise your authority. Rule and reign. That's what the Lord is saying. Not tomorrow. See a lot of people in your churches everywhere. Things happening. People living in oppressing spirit, demons and all of that. You go there, preach some sermon and shouting how to make some runs and dollars and the people are under oppression. Cast out devils. That's what the Bible says. Young man walked to my office three weeks ago. Lost his father. Came sitting by me. He's been struggling. He said he was passing through the road and the spirit told him, enter this place and find the man of God. He came in there. I was in Lagos doing ministry. They called me and said, tell him to wait. I came back, he located me, sat down before me. I said, brother, listen to me. I see the spirit of suicide over you. He said, that's exactly why I came to see you. I tried to see the pastor of the other church. I can't have access. They asked me to fill several forms. Life is not okay with me. I just lost my father and I'm thinking of suicide. Then I said, now you're free. I simply said, now you're free. He fell down and started groaning. I have the video there. I, I was forced because it was, it was strange to me. I mean... That was God. I have to take my camera and then just film in the guy. When he finished, I said, boy, you came from another realm. And I played back the film. He said, this is me and this, that is you. Now he's free. Cast out devils. That's what the Bible says. That's how you rule and reign. Don't wait. You are in your own kingdom right now. You are a king. You talk about God made of priests and kings. Why are you, where are you exercising your kingship? Kings makes decree. Kings are ruled by what do we say? Well, no, no, no. They make decrees. Hallelujah. The birth of Jesus was prophesied by a prophet. He took a king to bear the prophecy. How many of you understand that? Luke chapter 2. The decree was made that everybody should go to his own city to pay tax. That's how Joseph carried Mary. The prophecy was the child shall be born in Bethlehem. The king made a decree. Jesus came forth in Bethlehem. You rule by decrees. So God made all princes and kings. You have to understand who you are now. That's what I've come to announce to you. Rule in your kingdom. You are sitting together with him now, not tomorrow. It's a deception to think Israel is going to be the center of the kingdom. Some of you will not be able to go there. You don't have want to pay ticket to go to, to go to Jerusalem to see Jesus. And if all of us have to line out to go meet Jesus, how many people are going to die like they died in Mecca? 
in Jeddah, trying to throw the devil and the people stampede. That's the same thing that's going to happen. Religion kills people. So put Jesus in Jerusalem. All of you will line up going to see him. Some of you will never return. True stampede. But he made it simple. I am bringing the kingdom to you. Rule wherever you are. You can see me. As I said, they're not so low here, low there. For the kingdom of God is within you. It's not a geographical thing. Hallelujah. So the saints are judging the world, casting out devils from people. Wanted to catch that. Very important, very easy. You don't struggle. I'm going to talk a little bit on that, maybe on the supernatural. It's not a struggle. It's not even you. Supernatural is cause life flowing through you. Whatever thing he wants to do, he will do. Was in Mexico and I was just speaking, talking about the word. We had the word yesterday. I was just teaching the way I'm teaching now. Halfway the message, the Lord said, call for healing. I stopped the message. I said, if you see, come out. People came out and things begin to happen. I have to stand back to watch what was happening. It was God, not me. Somebody with a spinal cord, the disc is out of place through accident. Tim went in. Neil Cobb was going for operation. Third one, everything got sorted. Lamp, everything, things were just happening. Miraculously. It wasn't me, it was Jesus. If you obey his instruction, you get results. Rule in the kingdom, not tomorrow. Hallelujah. Let me show you part of the way you do this. I think I have a few more minutes. John, I mean, Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. Part of you ruling in the kingdom now, casting out devils, is opening the eyes of men. Opening of the people's eyes. Saving them by the grace of God as you preach the word. Acts 16, 17. This is Paul making a confession. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee. Speaking to the king. To do what? Open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. You opening the eyes of people and delivering them. Why are you opening their eyes? Because the greatest weapon of the devil is deception. He said the devil shall be bound so that he will not deceive. That's what he says. The devil had no power. The only weapon he uses is not about what? Deception. So when you get people to see light, the power of devil is gone. So if you can't literally cast a devil, at least you can open somebody's eyes. You are judging. Is that okay? So, and again, another point. Somebody will say, David, there you go. But he said, don't you know you're going to judge angels? Interesting. Is it true that we're going to judge angels? Where would that be? That would be another question. You need to also find out what the word angel stands for. I'll just show you something here. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let me show you something. Angels, let me still be on your path a little bit. Let's be friends. Angels can be both good and bad. Is that okay? But don't forget, when you judge evil spirit, you're casting them out. You're reducing their power. When you judge right spirit, you're giving them direction. I want you to get this right. Is that okay? Right. So, let me, let me read a scripture. Uh, I think, how do I put this now for you to catch it quickly? Whew. The word angels, often and again, is misapplied to a very large degree. Anytime we use the word angels, what commonly comes to our mind is spirit beings. Is that okay? Is that what Paul is saying you're going to judge? 
what, what reason do you think they have or we have to judge them? If they are the ones we are going to judge, what kind of angels are we talking about? Okay. Now, in Revelation 1, you know the story when the Lord spoke to the seven churches in Asia. Verse 20 explains something. So the mystery of the seven stars which I see in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Who are angels? Pastors. They are not demons. We often, you see, we don't take time to study. We read. The Bible didn't say read. It says study to show yourself. It didn't say read. It's not a newspaper. It says study. Study to show yourself approved unto God. So the seven stars you saw in the sun are the seven stars of the seven churches, the angels, and living Bible simply says they are the pastors of the seven churches. Hallelujah. I waste you together. Now let me read another scripture that seems close to what you're thinking about. Jude, look at verse 14. Now, Jude was reading AD 66. Somebody said, David, why are you so concerned about, about dates and all of that? So that I can follow the frequency as touching who is talking or who is talking to. Huh? Remember in the book of Matthew, it says, if they pass the cut in this city, run to another city. You shouldn't have finished running around the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. Are they still running? Was he talking to his disciples? Is anyone still alive? Hallelujah. Jude 14. And Enoch also the seven from Adam prophesied of this saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. The word saint is Hagios. Which means pure, morally blameless or religious, clean, consecrated. It speaks of saints. It's from the root word Hagnos. Which means clean, innocent, modest, perfect, chaste, pure, clean. 10,000 of his saints. Angels are pure people, if you will. So the saints who are pure are equally angels. Clean. Hallelujah. Now, why am I reading this? Because you're going to find that it takes the saint to judge the world. Let me give you another scripture on that. Enoch prophesied this. It's not a new prophecy. As far as the Old Testament and New Testament is concerned, you should be able to see it. Let me show you. Deuteronomy 33 verse 2. The Bible says, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai, and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From the right hand, went for the fury law for them. This is Mount Sinai, when God was giving the law. He said he came with ten thousand. So, ten thousand is not a numerical number. It's a figure that speaks of what God is doing. I would rather say it's God's number. Hallelujah. So when God was consecrating and receiving the people and giving them the law, the Bible refers to it as a coming of 10,000 of saints. That's the same thing. Today, what God is doing in this New Testament is coming toward a 10,000 of saint people. And what happened? Anytime he comes like that, he gives them the law. The law is not only to judge you, but to use the law to execute your office as a judge. Because a judge cannot do without law. Okay, let me read it. Back again to Jude 15 now. What is it meant for? As it comes with 10,000 of saints. Look at it. To execute judgment. Is it there? 
upon all and to convince all what the Holy Spirit was supposed to be doing that ungodly among them of their ungodly did which they have ungodly committed and of all their harsh speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's judgment. To convince them. That's judgment. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own loss and their mouth speaking great swelling words, having men's passion in admiration because of advantage. Let me read this from the message. Better off. And I want to take it from verse number five. Message translation. I'm laying this out as clearly as I can. Even though once knew all this well enough and she would need reminding. Here it is in brief. The master saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Later he destroyed those who defected. And you know the story of the angels who didn't stick to their position, abandoning it for other dark, darker missions. But they are now chained and jailed in a black hole until the great judgment day. Don't forget, AD 66, this was written. And it means much. Is that okay? Verse 7. And somebody said, well, this is what I'm talking about, David. He's speaking of the angels that came and married the daughters of men. Oh. Matthew, Jesus speaking in, in Mark chapter 12 said it plainly. Angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. So check again what Genesis is talking about. Otherwise, you violate the words of Jesus. That is why, doctor, of late I'm thinking twice because you think that Moses died that will violate the statement of Jesus because Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. So God should have been a dead man to bury Moses. Therefore, for me, Moses translated because the Bible said God buried him by himself. Why should it be so? Are you there with me? That's another story. But what am I trying to say here? The sons of men you find there have nothing to do with angels. I mean, sons of God, nothing to do with angels. If you realize, we had Cain and Abel. Right? Cain killed Abel. But then Seth came in, in place of Abel. And that was a righteous lineage. So we had two lineage that was going on. The lineage of Cain, the lineage of Seth. So the sons of the family of Cain married from the sons of the daughters of Seth. So the sons of God got married with the evil seed, Cain and Abel, devil and Jesus, wheat and tars, only two families on the earth. Hallelujah. Verse 7, Jude. Sodom and Gomorrah, which went into sexual rag and ran along with the surrounding cities that acted just like them. Another example. Burning and burning and never burning up. They serve as a stock of warning. This exactly the same program of this latest infiltrators, dirty sex rule and rulers thrown out, glory dragged in the mud. The angel Michael who went to the mat with the devil as the fault about the body of Moses wouldn't have dared level with him a blasphemous cause but said, no, you don't. God will take care of you. But these people never at any time, which people? These people that you're going to be judging, they never at any time, I mean, they never, come again, but these people snare at anything they can't understand. And by doing what they feel like doing, living by animal instinct, only they participate in their own destruction. I'm fed up with them. They've gone down Cain's road. Following that, and Jesus said, a time is coming when those who persecute you will think they are doing the work of God. They've gone the way of Cain's road. These are the people that judgment is coming onto, and you are in position to do this. These are the stars. These are the angels. 
And he says, they have been sucked into Balaam's error by greed. So today we are prophets who must prophesy for money. Are you getting that? They are concealed out in chorus rebellion. This is fighting for rulership in the church. These are the people we find in church. So what the Bible says, the saint shall do what? Shall judge. Bring correction to this set of people. Not tomorrow. It has to be now. Hallelujah. These people are what? On their love feast as you worship and eat together. They are giving you a black eye. Carousing shamelessly. Grabbing anything that is still nailed down. They are puffed up, mixed spoke by gods of wind. Like autumn trees. Stripped clean of leaf and fruit. Deadly dead pulled up by the roots. Wild ocean waves. Leaving nothing on the beach. But the foam of their shame. Hallelujah. This is exactly what the Bible is talking about. A people who are falling or who are falling, falling stars. When the Bible says stars shall fall in the book of Matthew, it's not talking about astronomical stars of Jupiter and whatever. The stars have to do with the royal priesthood. I mean, the, the, what do you call that? The priests, the Pharisees, these are the people that were in the stars of the heaven of Israel. So when judgment came, the temple is destroyed, there will be no place for them to exercise their authority anymore. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians, if the priests of this world had known, they would not have crucified a lot of glory. It was not the devil that killed Jesus. It was the Pharisees that killed Jesus. They were the priests of this world. Nothing to do with the devil. He said, they shall fall. What does that mean? They will lose their power. They will lose their dominion. Because in Matthew 23, he said, the Pharisees now describe the seat of Moses' seat. What does that mean? They will play a place of judgment. They were judging the people. But when Israel fell, when the judgment came, AD 70, the temple was destroyed. They lost power. In other words, they were dethroned from Moses' seat. They fell from the place of glory. Are you sitting there with me? That is why in Lamentation chapter 2, let me show you something. Put it on the board. Lamentation chapter 2, verse number 1, so that you can see something. The same thing was said about Capernaum. But in Lamentation chapter 2, I want you to see it. If you can get it. Are we together? Hallelujah. In Lamentation chapter 2, Okay, you should be able to see that. Okay, look at it. Lamentation 2, verse 1. Okay, we can just take it. Is it coming again? Lamentation. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the days of his anger. Was Israel in heaven up in the sky? What does he mean he cast down? He allowed foreigners to come destroy the temple. That was the beauty and the glory of Israel. That's why in Capernaum, the Bible says, Oh, that Capernaum, if all these things that were done were to be done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they will have remained to this day. But you shall be cast down. Why? Because Capernaum was more or less the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. He did a lot of signs and wonder. Heaven invaded the earth. But they lost the glory because they forsook what God did. He said, you shall be cast down. In other words, you are going to be destroyed. And we know that Capernaum is no more in existence. That would mean to be cast down from heaven. It doesn't mean you, you have to fly up there and then begin to tumble down and something like that. So stars falling simply means people who have attained to a particular height in glory and this people we are talking about here, they are ministers of God who have risen to a place of power and dominion and now they're falling into some other things, sexual immorality, greed, grumbling, murmuring, craftiness in the church. I promise you something, they stars shall fall. That's what God is talking about. Thank you for giving me the time. But the kingdom is right here. You can sit on your throne. You can rule. You can reign. Cast out devil. 
heal the sick. He didn't say pray for the sick. He said heal the sick. I'll leave you with that for the thinking.